In this episode, we interview Courtney Ariel. Yeah, pumped about this. She is the author of the article we read last week called For Our White Friends Desiring to Be Allies. I know. It's such a great interview. Hope you all stay tuned. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Lesbian, the podcast about an ex-Mormon gay girl just trying to figure out her life. I'm Mary. I'm Shelly. So, Shelly, we have a special guest today. We have Courtney Ariel, and she wrote the article that we read last week for our white friends desiring to be allies. So, Courtney, welcome to the Latter-day Lesbian Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, y'all. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, we're so pumped. Let me um, tell you really quickly how we found you. We just felt like we needed to do some kind of a different thing for that episode with everything that's going on in the nation right now. And all I did was a search for how can I be a better ally as a white person? It was just some generic search and your article popped up and I read it and I was like, this is it, Mary, check this out. This is what we need. Wow, Courtney, and you're trending. You you are trending. <laughs> and then I stalked you on Facebook, bum, bum, found you and I was like, oh my gosh, she's also a musician. We have to have her on. Uh, so when you replied to my invitation, mm-hmm. I was thrilled. We told our listeners and everyone's pumped to hear from you. So I want to pretend or maybe not pretend that you and I just met and we are about to be besties. (laughs) Besties. Tell me about yourself, Courtney. Oh, that is wonderful. (laughs) I will start by saying the article I wrote in 2017 in response to white nationalist gathering in Charlottesville, Virginia at the time. And it trended a little bit then And I got to interact with some mostly incredible comments um, through the comment section on the Sojourners website, really hear some people's powerful stories. And as hard and heartbreaking as that time was, I never really could have imagined an iteration where it would be even more prevalent, I guess. So I'll say that. But I am a musician and I'm a writer as well. I grew up in San Diego, California. I'm from Southern California, went to school in Santa Barbara and lived in Los Angeles after that. I moved to Nashville, Tennessee to be closer to family that's now in the South, but still be in a musical place. So writing and stories have always been the way that I've processed the world. I was an English literature major in school and loved to read voraciously as a kid, loved to be told stories. And a lot of shared humanity was found where I grew up, growing up in a diverse city around friends. Um, I would very often visit temple with Jewish friends. I got to go to mosque with a Muslim friend one time. I went to quinceañeras when I was younger, bat mitzvahs. So a lot of shared humanity happened through the telling of stories. And I think that I really just have a love for folklore and oral tradition and and see ways in which we can be more connected as citizens through writing and through stories. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, So Courtney, what have your life experiences with racism been? So that's varied. I can definitely say that I don't recall a time in my life where I was not aware of racism. It is something that my parents, in order to keep me safe and keep my body safe and keep my siblings safe, had to make us aware of. But I will say that I had experiences growing up that were 
everything from micro-aggressively, micro-racism that I think is still deeply wounding and contributes to something that I call relational violence Mm. in being underestimated and being assumed to be inferior in specific ways, in being treated as less than and being excluded from things. And then also had experiences with police before people were filming things on camera, right? I graduated from college in 2006 and encountered police violence with me and my classmates just being out in Santa Barbara and not being white students, being a group of black students. So there was always a thread and awareness of this system was not created for you. The system that you're existing in was not created for your humanity to not only be counted, but for you to thrive. And I think that's what's so powerful about resistance because Black people, marginalized people do find ways to thrive anyway. And that's really magic. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I think it's important for us to highlight the chasm between the white experience and the experiences of marginalized folks in that we are always aware of racism. We don't really have the luxury of having a phase in time or a period in our life where we're not aware that there are people in positions of power, people in the majority who are looking um, to us to be inferior, who are counting our humanity as less. And those are actually conversations that Black parents have to have with their kids Mm. at a really young age in an attempt to, um, I'll say, protect their bodies and protect them and keep them safe. It has to happen for them to say, these are the reasons you're going to be followed at the store with your friends. And these are also the reasons that your friends are not going to be followed. Mm. These are the reasons that you might be stopped by a police officer when you're just walking your bike home and doing nothing wrong. Yeah. So I don't remember a time in my life where I wasn't aware of the existence of racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With your article, being able to realize how to act has been so helpful to me and to Mary and to our listeners. One thing I loved when I realized about the article is you didn't write it for white people. You wrote it for your black friends to give out to white people when the white people keep asking questions like, what am I supposed to do, right? Yes, it was really in my spirit at that time. And I still feel this deeply. I wanted for it to be Uh, a space for breath that if marginalized folks and specifically black people at that time and during this time just felt that it was going to preserve their energy and their well-being to not engage, that they could either say, hey, I'm not going to engage, or if they chose to, they could send something in place of their breath and energy and that it would be this. That, That really was the inspiration for it. I would love to dive into the article a little bit more. We were hoping to kind of take it one point at a time. So listen more, talk less. Seems pretty apparent what that is. Right now, it's really important to do that because, you know, you look on Facebook and some white people who I think believe they're supportive are not doing that. They're doing a lot of white-splaining, I feel like. Mm -hmm. You know, they're trying to act sympathetic to what's going on. Then they're like, oh, but then rioting and looting shouldn't happen, you know, in the next breath. And it just feels a little like they're defensive. It's a defensive posture where you have to sort of almost backpedal or, um, but the real problem is this over here. Let's let's get the attention off of where it, it should be. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes so much sense. Thank you for that. 
I wrote an article that got published on Sojourners yesterday on how white liberalism can perpetuate relational violence. And I think that what you're explaining is touching on just that. We can't uh, show up to things and say that we want to dismantle them or be allies in helping to liberate groups of people and communities in crisis while also still trying to protect those structures. So you can't Mm -hmm. take something apart and keep it together at the same time. And that uh, conflicting, I notice, is doing a lot of harm right now. Like you're pointing out, people are saying things like, what about violent protesters? The clarification I'd like to make is protesters are protesting, rioters are rioting, and looters are looting. And sometimes there's overlap between those things, but we are, my God, we are missing the picture and have the completely wrong vantage point if that is what we're looking at. And furthermore, I think it's really egregious that we would be more upset by property damage than than we as a nation have ever been by the destruction of human bodies since the colonization of this country, since the beginning of America. So I have very little space for people that are saying, but what about this? I know that lives were lost, but what about property? I frankly think that this country should be really thankful that Black people have not burnt things down since the beginning of time. We were an enslaved people. Mm -hmm. You built a country on the backs of Black people and then are sort of surprised now when after seeing a myriad of Black bodies litter the streets, countless lynchings over time through Jim Crow and through now, that now people are upset that There is anger that's being expressed in a visceral way. I think listening is so important because we need greater empathy. If white folks can't look at that and do anything other than want to just listen and sit with that pain, then something is wrong. Something is wrong if right now is a time to be trying to white-splain Black people's pain to them. Gotcha. Something that I thought of while you were talking, since my background is within a very strict religion slash cult, very patriarchal, very white. For me, because I know you talk about in your article to get educated, read these books, understand it. Well, in my religion, and probably a lot of old school, I guess, Christian religions, whatever you want to call it, we weren't supposed to look outside of our prophets for answers. Mm. They were the ones who told us the answers to the questions because they were in direct communication with God. So when we had our original prophets, you know, and even as recently as the 70s, saying that, that Black people have the Negro curse, they would call it. Mm -hmm. They are the seed of Cain, they would call it. Like, these are all very horrible, Mm -hmm. racist things that I grew up hearing, and I just adopted because why would I look anywhere else? These people speak for God. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I would hope that listeners who are still in religions analyze where you get your beliefs from. If you're just going from your religious leaders, you need to look outside of that. Do you have any books that you would recommend just off the top of your head Uh, Courtney, that people could read. Yes. And I think that there are so many wonderful anti-racist resources going around right now too, like really comprehensive book lists that have been put together. Mm -hmm. Also voices that can can be followed. Rachel Elizabeth Cargill, um, C-A-R-G-L-E, is a really incredible one. She very often puts resources together. So I think it's important to, like you're saying, sit with experiences outside of our own, but also to keep in mind 
as far as religion goes and cults, there, there's an Italian saying that I love, and I'm not going to say it in Italian because I don't speak Italian, but it roughly translates to all translators are traitors. Mm. And it basically means that something is lost anytime something is being translated. There's no original of any sacred text that exists in a religion. There's oh. things that were recovered from Aramaic into Hebrew, into Greek, into it just and goes on and on. And so I think that people, it's also important to hold the lens that it's very unlikely that the text you're holding was not translated by a room of white men. <laughs> so that's just something to keep in mind as well. That's a good point. For sure. Yeah. But Americana by Chimamanda Adichie is a Nigerian writer. That is a book that oh, has been really uh, salvific and eye-opening for even me about the Black African experience. I would say the book Citizen by Claudia Rankine. I felt that so profoundly as I read it. Uh, Between the World and Me by ta Coates. He wrote or began, I believe, I don't want to misspeak, as kind of a letter to his son after the killing of Michael Brown. Mm. And that is deeply powerful and moving. I think it's important, especially right now, as we're talking about defunding police and horrifying ways in which communities have been policed, to read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. It's important to understand in this country that our police system just draws a direct line from slavery, a position that existed in slavery to suppress and contain and cage black bodies is what police officers are today. Mm -hmm. And it's important to think about lineage because we never tore anything down here. We never named anything or condemned anything as wrong. There are countries, and I don't want to compare the horror of the Holocaust with anything. I I don't believe in sort of the scarcity Olympics. Everything that has been done is horrifying to different groups of people. But I will say that in Germany, there was a naming of the horror that the Holocaust was, and there was an outlawing of swastikas And there was really this kind of work that sort of started after such a tragedy and such an inhumane display. I just think we have to really keep in the front of our minds that we never did any of that in America. And we really gave, in quotes, people their inalienable rights by Mm -hmm. force. Like it Mm. was white people were forced So we have to just keep in mind that a lot of those systems are are just like a a stone's throw away from what they were during slavery times. Um, But but those books, I think, are really powerful. And I would put at the top of the list right now, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. There are so many, though, just um, sitting with other experiences, The Color Purple by Alice Walker, anything by Toni Morrison, um, I think also White Fragility. The author of that book is white, but White Fragility is really important and speaks to this very specific, nuanced ways that white supremacy delusion kind of keeps hold and um, perpetuates defensiveness and makes it really hard for white people to break down some of those structures and foundations within themselves and around them. And there's lesbo stuff in the color purple, so there you go. (laughs) Yes, there is. There is. Bringing it back to us again. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Right? There is. So I loved 
in in point number four, you're recommending please don't say stuff like, I can't believe that something like this would happen in this day and age. What you say is is so true that it belittles a black person's experience for white people to show up 300 years late to the oppression party suddenly caring about the world. I thought that was so smart and well-written. Mm. Yeah, it's it's true. Don't act like you're an ostrich with, with your head in the sand, mm-hmm. not seeing this stuff, right? Yeah, my um, I'm just going to insert this really quickly. My ex-mother-in-law made a comment. Uh, they grew up in Fremont, California, so Northern California, and she's Mormon, very white. And her comment was, well, I, I never experienced any kind of racism like this where we live. I can't believe this goes on. I mean, do you not watch the news? Yeah, do you, you never just turn don't on see, a TV? Just don't notice. Like, what, what's going on? Do you not open a newspaper? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. understand how you don't see it, right? Right. I think, oh, that's so, that's so poignant. And it reminds me of a quote by James Baldwin. Oh, and another really wonderful, it's a film that can be watched, a work by James Baldwin called I Am Not Your Negro. Mm. That is another really, really poignant work. But a quote by James Baldwin is he says, they castrate you in the North and they castrate you in the South. It just looks different. Mm. And I think at that time when he was alive, he was speaking to racism existing everywhere. I grew up in Southern California. Racism is everywhere. I grew up in probably one of the most considered liberal places in the nation. But it just, it looks different everywhere. So I think that to the point in the article, number four, it breeds rage in the in the bodies of Black and marginalized people to be reminded, comments like that really remind us that while we've been living an entire life of trying to survive, succeed, and dare to thrive in a system that was created for our oppression and to keep us in chains, white people have literally chosen or had the luxury or had the indifference of not caring and not noticing. And I think that that, for a lot of Black people, can speak to an inhumanity in the construct, not talking about specific human beings, but in the construct of whiteness. How is an identity structured in such a way that it allows for people to be completely blind of the suffering of their neighbors? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Number five, I liked to ask when you don't know, but do the work first. This reminds me, and I was guilty of it. I was hanging out with a group of Black female friends of mine and they were describing how, you know, somebody, oh, you know, another person just touched my hair without asking. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, back up, back up. Mm. People touch your hair. First of all, people touch your hair at all. And people touch your hair without asking you. They just touch your hair. And I was horrified. This has never happened to me. And I guess that was something that I didn't know to research. But I think that I was so horrified by it. And they clearly understood that I didn't know this at all. They were just rolling their eyes at me. Like, <laughs> Mary, just get a grip or get a clue or something, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I just kind of felt like, wow, am I naive to not see what's going on? That's almost like treating you like you're like a 
a little pet on display or something that you yeah. just get to touch somebody without permission. That is. Well, and a, a friend of mine, she's she's black, and she mentioned that they had just barely passed a law. This has been a few months ago. Um, passed a law in Washington D.C. where you cannot fire someone based on their natural hair. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't fire someone for growing an afro or getting a weave or having dreads. And she was talking about this, and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a thing. There's a thing. Like yeah. you have to make a law that says you can't do that. Why would anyone? Because I, it would, it didn't affect me. I had right. never heard of it. Just another example. Yes, and and that is a huge one. And I think that you said it when you talked about it is like being on display and being treated as animals, and so much of that comes out of black bodies existing for consumption. The idea that black bodies are here to be consumed or be at the sort of disposal of of white America. But that is something that expressions of blackness through hair, through clothing, through jewelry, through um, so many different avenues, people have to fight for their rights um, to sort of exist in a way that feels comfortable and feels true to them. My boyfriend has dreads and there have been a few times where he has talked about how if he were to leave the current job he's at and go somewhere else where they could potentially try to let him go for for not liking the way that he appears and for him looking, quote unquote, essentially too black, which mm-hmm. is what no one will say. But yeah, I think that all of those things, they sort of add up to this pressure that it's almost like being in a pressure cooker, the, the daily sort of things that maybe seem smaller but there's so many of them each day and there's so many days each year that, yeah, when you think about folks dealing with those kinds of things on a regular basis, it's a lot. You're right. Mm, wow. You're right. I think a lot of people who haven't seen this don't understand it. For example, you know, myself probably five years ago, the things you're saying, I would be thinking, oh, it's just over the top. and No one meant anything by touching their hair or no, you know. It doesn't matter what you mean when you do it. It's what the person who's receiving that action is feeling. And so if my action toward you makes you feel or makes you reminded um, of the history and the racism, that's what matters. And it's it's not your job as a Black person to get over it. It's my job to fix my actions, to fix my thoughts. Well, and show some fucking respect. Don't oh, just touch somebody without their permission. <laughs> At the basic level, you're... At the you're, basic yeah. level, right? Uh, but, but now learning that that goes back to treating a black person as an object, as a commodity. And being able to think about that from that point of view definitely would make me and hopefully many white people stop and think... So many of my white friends who know I'm like, oh my gosh, why are they even my friends on Facebook? Just acting like this is such an overreaction going on in the country right now that, you know, yes, the thing with George Floyd, it was sad and uncalled for. But, you know, they arrested the guy and he's in prison and his wife left him. So it's it's even. Mm. And it's disgusting to me, that attitude that, oh, now we're even. Right. I can just respond to that by saying it's such an underreaction, truly. And it's such a long, long, long time coming. And that's why it's so important for us to know our history. It was 1857 when Dred Scott was a Black man living freely, living in a territory that did not have—slavery was not active where he was living. And the United States Supreme Court decided that he— 
could not be free, that Africans could not be citizens of this country. So it's been a really long time that the laws that have been placed on Black bodies have kept us from life and life more abundantly. Only now there are cameras to kind of see the different ways that our freedoms and humanities are taken from us and also our lives. Yeah. I think it's really important for people to, especially people who call themselves patriots, to imagine what citizenship means to them and to define that word for themselves. I wrote about it in the article, but I think that we are disillusioned into thinking that uh, citizenship doesn't require work of us. And a lot of the work of whiteness is a lot of unlearning and unearthing and dismantling of these systems, but also changing ways of thinking so that people aren't looking at a man having his neck kneeled on and being suffocated for over eight minutes and then saying, but it's okay because the police officers are in jail now. Right. That does not make it even. It's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, no, I I agree. But again, when you have the people like my mother, my ex-mother-in-law who says, well, I didn't, this is just a shock. I never saw this kind of thing growing up. They look at it as an isolated incident and that it's going to be old news and move on. Stop your, stop your rioting and your looting. And, mm-hmm. and that never solved, you know, just those attitudes. And mm-hmm. it seems like a lot of them can't look past the surface headline. You know, Mm -hmm. they can't look into why. Why did this happen? Why? Uh, And that's what I think we're trying to get people to think about is not necessarily what happened, but why, why it's happening. Well, and change can only grow out of protesting. If no one protests or says anything, then change does not happen. Yeah, you have to get angry. That's that's something that we get um, from time to time on the podcast is people... Uh, think we're we're too angry. When are you going to let it go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You left the church. Blah blah blah. Just let it go. Stop being so angry. Anger, anger doesn't fix anything. Yeah, yeah it, does. it does. Yeah, it does. Actually, <laughs> anger I think leads to motion, and motion is what gets things done. So I'm not just going to sit and just say, "Well, I'm not going to get angry about it." I mean, yeah, there shouldn't be racism, but anger doesn't fix anything. Mm-hmm. When was the last time sitting passively by fixed anything, Courtney? I cannot think of a time. I I, I agree with you so wholeheartedly. I think there's an anger that's righteous. Mm -hmm. I think that there are movements that have come out of people just frankly saying, I'm fed up. Or, you know, I think an example that every person can relate to, no matter how much uh, accurate U.S. history they are aware of, is Rosa Parks sitting on a bus and literally just saying, I'm tired and I'm not moving today. So I think that we have to be mindful that there are movements that have come out of people being angry. And also, like you're saying, looking at systems, nothing about this is surface. The United Nations released a report last week, you all may already know this, essentially saying that racism in America is a state of emergency, an egregious state of emergency. Yeah, It yeah. is deplorable. So for yeah. people to be sort of mystified or, oh, this will just die down, or this is just a one-time thing, you shouldn't want to take pride in a nation where this will die down. Right. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So I love also your last point, point six, let's stop talking about colorblindness. Mm-hmm. There are definitely white people that say, I don't see color. I'm not a racist. I don't even see color. What do you think about that? I think that is so terribly awful. I'll just be honest. <laughs> it's, it is the complete erasure of human identities and experiences. If we 
lived in a nation where, first of all, everybody that is here came here by their free will and choice. Let's just put that out there. Black people are not immigrants. We were brought here on ships and stolen from our native land. So that's just first. But if we lived in a nation where examinations were done on Black people and scientists said, you know what? Every human being is the same at a cellular level. That is true, but that is not what happened. What happened is that people were said to be inferior because of the color of their skin. And then lineage and years are lived with that kind of thinking being embedded into folks. So colorblindness is such a violent, terrible myth. And when people sort of use that as a way to uh, express or um, kind of like sell their liberalism or how open-minded they are, all that I am thinking is how much harm they are doing on a daily basis without recognizing it. We have to see each other's identities. I was shaped by growing up around a lot of Chicano culture in Southern California. It was important for me to go to a high school that had a large population of Jewish kids and to look around on high holy days and see who wasn't there or to go visit friends' houses and celebrate Shabbat dinner or to grow up around Filipina friends. Like Every identity, every thread that I have gotten to make community with, I celebrate the differences and the nuances because it makes them who they are, but also it affects their place in this culture. So I would be missing out on their lives to say, I don't see who you are. I don't see the ways you've been affected. I don't see the history of marginalization. I don't see your gender or sexuality well, that's just convenient for me because those people don't have the luxury to sort of say, let me put my skin color away and everybody will just not be racist and see me as a human. That's not how our world works. So colorblindness is so awful. I am guessing, and I'm sure I'm guessing very accurately, that it is the white people that say they're colorblind because they haven't been affected by being another color besides white. Right. You know, when I was thinking about that this morning, I was thinking about the way I was raised in Mormonism and how it is so racist. And I remember that we were taught that in heaven, heaven is white and delightsome. God is white. Um, so when you get to the highest levels of heaven, you know, you're resurrected and you have a, a, an actual body resurrected, but you will be white. So I I was like, did I just misinterpret that? Was I taught that? And so I threw that question out on social media. And yeah, that is what was taught, whether from a book or just subtly kind of mentioned it's white in heaven. That's what people were taught. And so then I thought again about people saying they're colorblind. I really think when people, when white people say I'm colorblind, they still have this thought in their head that everyone is equal as in they're all white, not the color, but the experience of white. I don't know if that made any sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I think there's so much truth to that. And I think that that's, you know, getting down to the brass tacks is something we need to look at too, is why is whiteness, why has whiteness and the experience or idea of whiteness as a construct been this sort of beacon in the sky for a lot Mm -hmm. of people? Why has that been given to us as the sort of aim that we should all be trying to reach. And even in the work of deconstruction that you're doing, coming out of a toxic religious background, people saying to you, oh, quiet your anger, is is adding to the erasure 
of your identity as a deconstructed Mormon and the work that you're trying to to do to liberate yourself from that. So I just think the more and more space that we can hold for one another's experiences, but also when things come up for me, I always try to sit with the why. Wait, why am I resistant to make space for this? This human being is sitting across from me telling me their experience. Why is there anything inside of me that's saying anything other than yes, and I receive that, and I'm going to learn more about that, and I want to do better at that? I I always want to look inward because I'm like, there's something, you know, this person has blood flowing through their veins the same way that I do, and they're telling me about their pain. And if something inside of me is reaching for anything other than a road towards understanding, then that's something I need to work on. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Amen to that. To turn away from being defensive and instead listening Mm -hmm. without thinking about, how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to tell a better story? Um, But to be able to look inside, that's beautiful. So, Shelly, this sounds like a good time for a break. I agree. We'll be right back. And we're back. Hello. Have you ever noticed, and maybe it's a white thing, that certain amount of difference is okay up to a point? Mm-hmm. So, like, for instance, you have a different career than me. Oh, that's interesting. I want to hear about your different career. Or you make a different recipe than I make. Oh, tell me about that. But then as soon as you look too black or you look too Jewish mm-hmm. or too this, too to that, mm-hmm. then it's threatening somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really think it's maybe, and I don't know, maybe you guys have a different opinion, but maybe it comes from the stupid Puritan culture that, mm-hmm. you know, the United States was supposed to be founded on by the early Puritan colonists. Oh, and that it was, you know, God saved the United States uh-huh. for, this is a Mormon teaching, by the way, God saved the United States and led Christopher Columbus here so that he could create a free country where his true religion, hashtag Mormonism, could be restored. He was probably Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a good point. But but big white Mormon God with his flashy uh-huh. white teeth was, um, you know, didn't bother worrying about the Native Americans that were killed. I don't think his teeth looked very white because his skin was so white. Not enough contrast, oh, right? That's true. He was but all he white. Didn't, he didn't drink he, coffee because that's against no, the No, I the think more. he survived on mayonnaise alone. <laughs> God's so white. He's so white. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Seriously, if you don't laugh at this stuff, you just cry all the yeah. time. So. Yeah. I think that's such a good point, though. You have to have—we have to be able to come together like this and think about these things and, and laugh. Hold space mm-hmm. for the laughter and the tears because for sure. both are going to be healing and restorative. And I think you're, I think Puritan culture— has so much to do with just this. I mean, we are so concerned with bodies in the religions of this nation and what people Mm -hmm. are doing with their bodies and who people are loving with their bodies and what people are growing in their uteruses and so many things. But I just feel like we're so restrictive and prude and close-minded in terms of what will allow for existences. Like like you're saying, we allow a little bit of variation from this sort of Puritan white marker, but then if it goes too far, we're like, hmm, that makes us uncomfortable. Right. Wow. Uh, so we asked some of our listeners if they had any questions for you, because we were all so excited to be able to get you. <laughs> 
and they listen to the to the podcast. Actually, a lot of our listeners listen to the podcast multiple times because it's a shorter episode and there was so much in there that they really wanted to take it in. First, I have a question from Tara. She is black and she wants to ask, well, what now? The whole world is watching. How do we keep the momentum? We don't want this to just be old news. That's such a good question, Tara. And I enjoyed so much listening to that episode last night. I was just sitting in a chair and I listened twice as well because it was (laughs) shorter. And I was like, wow, this is just, I got so much out of it. But I think that some of this work right now, it's being videotaped, it's being filmed, it's being tweeted about, it's online. And we're seeing a lot of movements happening. And I pray that people do keep showing up as it is safe to do, because we're still in a global pandemic with their bodies in those movement-making ways. But a lot of this work is also going to be quieter. And it's not necessarily going to have an audience. It's going to be moments with other people, but it's also going to be a lot of work within ourselves. So I think that In order for us to keep moving towards, again, I'll preface this by saying, if our aim is to grow a relational garden here, if our aim is truly to dismantle the delusion of white supremacy in this nation, that is big, that is long, that is generational, that is teaching our kids something different. And I think it means every day picking up the work of citizenship, whatever that looks like for whoever we are, wherever we are, challenging our own thoughts. Okay, wait, why did I just clench my purse right now? Why did I move away from that person? Unpacking those things and not letting up in terms of holding space for the humanity of others, holding space for identities that are different than our own. I also think it looks like the continued action work of looking at where dollars are being spent. Look at your city's budget as it is available and look at the amount of money that's going to policing versus education, but then look at the children's literacy scores and test scores where you live. Those things are really telling in terms of what we truly value and how communities of people are being policed. So I think that some work is signing petitions, becoming more informed, holding officials accountable, following different voices that are that are unlike our own. A lot of my work as in an attempt to be an ally to the communities of queer people around me that I love is showing up for marches and rallies, but is also watching pose and watching art that's being created by queer people and, and just holding space and being lucky to be a visitor in that space. So I think there are so many different ways that it's going to look, but it every day is going to be showing up and saying, I'm a citizen in a really, 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 really deeply broken nation. And if I want to be a part of any kind of healing, there's something for me to do. There's someone for me to see today. Mm, I love love that. that. Annie writes in, um, and she's white. She's ex-Mormon. She wants to know what she can do about passive racism, like the racism you hear, but you don't quite recognize it until a few minutes later. Yeah. And I know um, now a lot of times those acts are referred to as microaggressions. And I think they are so much of what we encounter. So I think that's a great question that she raises. And I've been in those situations where it has really hit home a few minutes later, and then I've gone back and engaged. I 
sat across from somebody that I worked for who took me to a restaurant in a neighborhood here in Nashville, 12 South, that used to be historically black community, has had a lot of gentrification. And she said to me, a white woman, this used to be a really dirty black neighborhood, but not blacks like you. And in that Uh. moment, I felt so stunned and almost like I had been tased that I didn't have the words. I didn't have the language in that moment. But I think a part of being in community with folks, and and we need to just get better, better, better at having conversations with one another, but is going back and being able to say, hey, we were at lunch the other day, or if she hears something at the grocery store, maybe you don't have the words in the moment, but you have a relationship with that person and you go back and say, hey, I just want to let you know that that didn't sit super well with me or made me think or feel this way or, or just blatantly, Hey, that was really racist. And let me tell you why, but I think it's good to come with resources, um, to come to that person and say, you might read this article or you might benefit from this podcast that kind of expounds a little bit on why that comment really missed the mark. Yeah. I like that. And I like that you point out it's okay. It's actually good to go back after the fact and say your piece. Sure. Um, I know a lot of people and myself, I, I get uncomfortable when there's any kind of conflict. I need to be okay with what they would perceive as causing conflict by giving my thoughts when they are saying racist things. So cause conflict. It's one of the reasons why this has gone on for so long is white people don't want to say anything. They don't Mm -hmm. want to lose their white friends. They don't want their white family to think that they're somehow now super liberal and, you know, whatever the case is. No, we we have voices. Mm -hmm. And like you pointed out at the beginning of the article, white people have had the microphone forever. And honestly, we still, because of this country, have the microphone. Let's use it. Yeah. yeah. Let's use it for good. Yeah, use it for use sure. it for good. Another question. Last question, actually. This is from Chrissy. And Chrissy, this is a difficult position. She is a police officer. Mm-hmm. And she is heartbroken over the treatment of Black people. But also she's scared for her loved ones who are also police officers. She wants to know, even with doing all of the things that you wrote in the article, how does she convince people that she is one of the good ones? That is such a good question. I have a dear friend from college who is on LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, and that is such a nuanced pain that police officers that literally want to protect and serve their communities, and they are out there. That is such a nuanced pain that's being experienced right now. I think that it is accepting that when there is anger, when there is resistance towards you, it's towards the institution. It's towards what the badge represents still and what the institution of policing is and has been since the beginning of our country. But I think it matters to daily show up and let communities know that you're there to serve them. Be a part of the community. If somebody is having a fish fry, if somebody is selling lemonade on the corner, we need to be seeing police in that capacity. We need to be seeing police show up for community fun days, as well as for keeping the community safe and, and, and very real threats of crime. So that wound is deep, deep, deep between the Black community and marginalized community and policing because the position of being a police is a direct line from being an overseer on a slave plantation. If we're going to be a part of America's institutions, we have to hold the history of them and the people that they have 
done an incredible amount of harm to, but then we can still show up with our hearts and our desires to make a difference and be something different. It just means, I think, showing up in the spaces where you can also be gentle and also be a strong force. It, It was so powerful for me as a kid to see police come out to the school carnival because it was low threat for them. It's a bunch of kids, a relaxed kind of energy to that. So I think that the more that police can really show up, even now in these protests, the police that are marching, sometimes with people, the police that are stopping and taking a break to do the electric slide or the cha-cha slide or the wobble, (laughs) that is mending. That is healing deeper than we'll know. Mm, Gotcha. Wow, that's 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 a fantastic answer. It's, it seems like more of, of having this collective of humanity, you know, the police officers are part of your community. I love that. That's, that's great. And, and I think for Jessica, who I'm sure is listening, that's who she is, you know, she's again, one of the good ones. And so it's been heartbreaking for her to see the way things have gone down as well. So awesome answer. I think these conversations are so important and I feel really grateful to be here today for you all to hold this space. So I want to say thank you for that. Absolutely. Oh, this yeah. has been enlightening. This is lovely. Um, yeah. This is needed. This these is so these needed. conversations are needed. One last question for you. True or false? Did you or did you not officiate at a gay wedding? I did. I've, I've officiated <laughs> two weddings, two gay weddings for two couples that, and I have to say of all the weddings I've been to, they were just, oh my God, it's hard to even find words to describe the love, but the perseverance, the resilience in that space, the, oh yes, that is true. That is true. And I'm, and I'm the lucky one. Mm. That's beautiful. One of these days, if Mary ever proposes, uh, yeah, we know, we know where to turn. Yes! I love it. Hilarious. Get, get your shit together, Mary. Let's go. No pressure, right? No, no, no pressure, pressure at all. Yeah, what are you doing next summer, uh-huh, uh, Courtney? I'm uh-huh. just kidding. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. It it truly is such a gift to be asked to, to be a part of such a special day. How yeah. wonderful is that? Yeah. Shelly is subtle with her hints. Very subtle. I know mm-hmm. that was. Hey, I feel you. <laughs> Courtney, this has been a pleasure. You are a lovely person. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Oh my gosh, the feeling is mutual. This has been so heartening. I I think I will carry that feeling throughout the day, but you've definitely got a new listener. Oh, Oh, yay! I am a fan, and yeah, just appreciate the conversations y'all are having here in the space you're making. And I was excited to hear when I was listening, um, you said... We usually talk about patriarchy, Anne, and I was like, yes, let's talk about dismantling patriarchy as well. Yes. So I'll be listening for that. Too. <laughs> right on. You know, yeah. it's funny, after the episode, a gentleman wrote in and he was like, I've been afraid to listen, but I listened to this episode and it was wonderful. It, it did more for me to unravel my racism in 10 minutes and Mormonism, you know, whatever, blah, blah. And then he said, I would like you to recommend to me which one of your episodes do you focus and talk about um, the patriarchy? And Mary and I were <laughs> Like uh, all of them, like I mean, <laughs> in we were little trying, ways. Yeah, we were trying to yeah. think of one that was like mostly patriarchy, but it's going. You know that because of being raised Mormon and being women and being gay, like you can't escape patriarchy. Right. There's no topic that doesn't have something to do with patriarchy. So, um, yeah, and and I. 
am kind of anal, and then I'm going to ask you to please start with episode one. <laughs> something I do. They, they do. I know. I know. I just don't want to miss anything. doesn't understand how people listen to podcasts. <laughs> well, I, but Courtney, just promise me. Just promise me you'll start an episode eventually. And, uh, one. please forgive the audio quality back in those early days. Yeah, we, we're working it out. Oh, I will. And I will say that when I go back to podcasts, that's my natural inclination is to go, is to go back to the beginning. That's every podcast yes. that I've gone to late <laughs> because then I can kind of just let it play. Like as I yeah. have to stop, it goes back to the same spot where it was and it keeps going in order. So that just feels sort of natural to me, but I recognize probably not everyone does that. Well, everyone who doesn't, they need to reconsider how they listen to podcasts. Because the only <laughs> way uh-huh. is to go back to episode one. Shelly, you need to open your mind and your heart to uh, accept all the ways that people listen I to podcasts. I just feel like they're missing something. <laughs> <laughs> this is my art. This is what I well, do. <laughs> Courtney, you'll certainly learn a lot about Mormonism. I know I for sure did. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. Yes. Um, it's, 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 wa- it's wacky it's, for sure. wacky. Right. So, Courtney, if people want to know more about you, maybe listen to your music, et cetera, read your articles, what's the best way for them to find out more? Yes, thank you. This is one of those times where Google is your friend. So if you search Courtney, C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y-R-E-L-A-R-I-E-L, um, I don't want to tell people to pay for streaming platforms, but I am on streaming platforms that people can pay for. But then also I'm on YouTube and SoundCloud, and those are both free. So people can find my music on Spotify and Tidal and Apple Music and all those good places, but also videos on YouTube. And oftentimes I'll put something on SoundCloud that might not be super professionally recorded, but is from the heart and like it's I love hearing artists play demo tracks. So that'll that'll be the kind of stuff that's on SoundCloud. And also things that are co-written with other artists. Nice. What about your uh, Sojourners website? Yeah. So the articles that I've published for Sojourners, people can go to Sojourners website, which is existing um, social justice platform, social justice faith platform, and search Courtney Ariel. Or if they do a Google search of me, I actually think the first thing that comes up is my Sojourners article from three years ago because it's trending right now. But then I also put one out yesterday that folks might want to engage with um, about white liberalism. Nice. Okay. Sounds good. And a great place to keep up to date with things I'm doing, like, cause I'll put it there as soon as it's happening is Instagram and Facebook as well. And I'm Courtney Ariel music on Instagram altogether, Courtney Ariel music. And then I think it's the same on Facebook as well. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Courtney, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for uh, making space for this article and for your last episode. I really do thank you both. This has been a gift and it's been beautiful to be around your energies in this way. Well, thank you. You have made my day. You're just, you're like um, just this a loving blossom, but it okay. sounded a little weird before I said it. <laughs> no, it um, okay, well, you are like a loving blossom in my heart. Thank you. That's, I am a person, maybe because I'm weird too, who received that just completely. I was like, that is beautiful. I oh, receive thank that you. Love. Oh, thank you. You too. So cute. <laughs> see so that was an amazing interview. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, love her. Okay, why don't we uh, go to a break and then come back and do some patrons and some stuff. Okay, do it. Be right back. 
we're back from the break. Mm-hmm. Pumped for patrons. Pumped for patrons. <laughs> How many do we have? Well, since we did not read any last week, oh, okay, we have managed to collect five. <laughs> Although it could be four, it might be five. Uh, okay, you'll see when we get there. <laughs> Are we still trying to do COVID names? You can do whatever you want, baby doll. Okay. Patron number one, mm-hmm. Elliot. And by the way, that's one of my favorite names. Did you oh, know yeah? that? I yeah. had no idea. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I don't know. I just think it sounds cool and it's different. Mm-hmm. Elliot. Got a couple of, L, couple of L's, a couple of T's, doesn't it? How many one, does it have? Just one T. But you're right on the two L's. <laughs> and to be exact, also three vowels. <laughs> <laughs> Has a few E's. Maybe a few. There's one E. <laughs> like 30 O's, Oh, at least. God. Elliot, we're sorry. <laughs> we're sorry that we just so misspelled your name. <laughs> it's like trying to spell zucchini. I can never spell that word. Oh, yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> What's with these double vowels? I don't understand. Is that Wait, what Wait, zucchini does? has two Cs. I thought C-C- it was two Ns. Is it two Cs? Okay, yeah, neither C-C- of those are vowels. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> okay, Elliot, our bad for basically destroying... Elliot Zucchini Vacuum. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> That's a great name. Next, Antonia H. Antonia H. Can't really fuck that one Stands up. Stands for Hoover, which is a vacuum brand. <laughs> oh, my God. Mary. I don't know where I'm going with this. Just just go with it. Mary's feeling like doing a little cleaning, apparently, Antonia Hoover. Thank you very much, Antonia H. Possibly Hoover. Next, Emily R. Roomba. This is little vacuums. Uh-huh. Yep. I like okay. where you're going with this. Emily R. for Roomba. I feel very tidy suddenly. <laughs> For some reason, when I think of Roomba, I keep remembering that little meme thing or whatever it was that I read about how this person had their Roomba on, and but the dog took a shit on the floor <laughs> and the carpet. So the Roomba was just like, like just smearing shit <laughs> all over the carpet back and forth, you know, like in directions. Well, there you go, Emily. When I think of Roomba, I think of that Saturday Night Live sketch where they had a little tiny device called a Woomba. And it would follow women around trying to clean their vaginal regions. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you for real? That's a real sketch. I'm oh, sorry. dear God. It's like one of those fake commercials. Well, yeah, I, I We figured. should look that up. Woomba. Sorry about that, Emily. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the next patron is Barbara. And the patron after that is Barbara. So I don't know if there's two different Barbaras or if Barbara oh. accidentally signed up twice. Either way, Barbara and Barbara. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So if there's two of you, we're sorry that we're clumping you into one. And if there's only one of you, um, like, check your Patreon account and signed up twice. <laughs> Either way, we are so thankful, Barbara. Ben Barbara. Or Barbara's. I don't know. Why All don't right. we go on to channels members? Why don't we? Okay. I got three channels members for you. They've been around for a while. We've got Nicole, Kelsey, and Amy, and none of them have their pictures posted. Oh. So, Nicole, Kelsey, and Amy, what the hell? Hmm. Maybe they're shy. Why shy in channels? I like, don't know. seriously, the videos that I put up, I could be in bed. Oh, yeah. I could be just— Usually we're not wearing bras. I don't know the last time I wore a bra. (laughs) I usually am wearing the same shirt for like three days. That's also true. (laughs) And I have started really not caring that my roots are like 
three inches. <laughs> we you know. do have to touch you up. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. true. So Nicole B, Kelsey T, and Amy T, who may be sisters, I don't know. <laughs> um, if you're worried about your picture, come on. You've seen me at my worst. Get your picture up there. Yeah, we pretty much just put videos up whenever, wherever. We don't We don't seem to care. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're past feeling. That's a Mormon. Uh, is it? Yeah. That's a foom pod. Past feeling. It is? I mean, why not? I don't okay. know what it means. We're past feeling. All right, I'll save it. Anyway, that's all I have for channels. Well, that is quite the list. Uh, I don't know where I was going with those vacuum names, but now I feel like um, cleaning up a little bit. You going to go clean some shit? I just did the dishes. I know. Good for you. Thanks. And we were doing some yard work. Yep. We do a lot of work. Yeah, we we're, work we're, hard. We're lesbians. We're worker bees. We are worker bees. <laughs> There was a deer in our backyard today. Okay, yeah. So we, <laughs> I'm going to go off for a second. Let me adjust my mic. Okay. So we plant some flowers and shit up front. One of the plants we planted, I planted, was a knockout rose bush. Beautiful rose bush. Bright, like pink red flowers. Just gorgeous, right? Like roses, actually. <laughs> well, since it was a rose bush, yes. Um... Probably after it was in the ground for maybe four days, the deer found it. Yeah, it's a deer snack. Who they knew? They didn't know that. So they ate, yeah, assholes. So they ate. Seems like a prickly little snack there. It's like that time I um, I picked a prickly pear when I was in L.A. and I had prickles in my my hand for like two months. It's like the time when we had that trip from hell to Phoenix and we tried to get a photo op and I got like prickly cacti, cacti shit all over me and then our you flight did. got fucked up. Yeah, you sat in a cactus. <laughs> I forgot about that. We brought a little taste of Arizona home with us. Anyway, back to the rosebush. So... The deer ate all the rosebuds off. I'm like, what the fuck? So I do a, a search online, and it's like, apparently that's a delicacy. Like, those ass wipes. So Delicious. Mm-hmm. They also ate the hostas. I guess also delicious Should for deer. Should we taste some hostas? Maybe put them in a salad? Huh. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so I dug up the rose bush and replanted it in the backyard because the backyard is on three sides fenced with super tall solid wood fencing. Mm-hmm. On one side, it is chain link, but it goes into the neighbor's yard, which then goes the other neighbor's yard. So I'm thinking rose bush is safe. You would think. You would think. This morning we were out sitting on the newly finished patio and a rose was opened. Do you it remember seeing it? It was yeah. beautiful. I'm it like, oh my beautiful. gosh, I'm so glad I moved that rose bush. Mm-hmm. We go back out again tonight to drink some wine and look to the side and guess what? All the rosebuds gone. Gone. And gone. we saw the culprit this afternoon. Yeah, that yeah, that asshole. Thank deer. you. I'm all these bad words. And so he was in our yard. I'm like, you fucker! And he just leaps over the chain link like it's just sitting there. I guess which it is. But anyway, uh, we digress, right? Did we? <laughs> Were we talking about channel members? Yeah. How did we go from that to deer eating the rosebush? Mm, I really don't remember. I need to listen to that and see mm-hmm, how the mm-hmm. hell. Anyway, sorry, listeners. Yeah, sorry. We got off on a real tangent there. Deer, mm-hmm. deer tangent. Yeah, dear listeners. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. Should we wrap it up? Wrap Put it a up. bow on it? If you would like to join us on either Patreon or channels, please visit patreon.com slash lesbian. That's latter with two T's. Double T. Double T. E-R. Day. Lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> or visit latterdaylesbian.org slash polo to sign up for Marco Polo 
channels. channels. Yes. Yep. Is that it? That's it. Okay, let's thank Dan from Extension Audio. Dan, thanks for leaving it in. And everybody else, please stay away from those damn cults. Because they are no joke. They are no fucking joke. Oh my God, no joke at all. <laughs> Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.